Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mees, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, uh, we'll be talking to the man behind the music at our podcast. Uh, but we'll, before I get to that, I just wanted to remind everyone to please check us out on social media simply by searching for Left POC. Um, you can also find us, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on YouTube, and most important of all, you can find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash leftpoc. For those of you who may not know, all of our content is free for the public, but we accept donations, of course, to keep things running um, in the background. So, of course, the remuneration we give our guests, the donations we make in their honor, and, of course, web storage, data storage, things like that. So if you're interested in donating, please do so by going again to patreon.com slash leftpoc. Um, Before I begin, I just wanted to also remind everyone that uh, because of things going on at home, especially with regard to my taking care of my daughter um, pretty much exclusively during the day uh, for the next coming weeks, I will be a bit spotty on the Podmas episodes. Um, I'm getting to them as I can, so just bear that in mind. Um, Oh yeah, I forgot to remind other folks of this too. Lots of reminders today. Podmas is still ongoing, so for those who may not be aware of that, Podmas is just my... um, dedicating myself a bit in the return to podcasting because I had taken a hiatus uh, since the summer to just kind of readjust to life, uh, commuting to teach and things like that. Um, so Podmas is my re-entry into podcasting with some regularity. Um, I'm My goal initially was to record an episode a day in the lead up to Christmas, but because of circumstances having changed, my daughter being in the hospital quite a bit, their school shutting down multiple times because of COVID cases, um, that changed and life changes. So that's where we're at. (laughs) Just going with it. Anyway, on to today's show. So we have as our special guest, Michael Salomon. Um, He is actually the person who is behind our theme song, and many, many other really cool songs that you should definitely check out. Um, So just a little bit about him. This is his bio here. Reverend Dr. Michael Salomon has been a journalist, musician, podcaster, activist, political consultant, tech developer, artist, restaurateur, and nonprofit administrator. He is currently experimenting with hermiting (laughs) in hopes of evading COVID-19 and to stay alive despite his detractors. Um, So yeah, I think that's a really funny bio and I think kind of explains the situation for a lot of us, especially as we headed now to like our 90th wave, it feels like, of COVID-19. It's becoming more like COVID-20, COVID-2021, maybe COVID-2022 with Omicron. We'll see how these things go. But anyway, he was a great guest. We speak to him about his work um, as well as just sort of political issues at the moment um, and, you know, where we can go in terms of organizing perhaps and blending organizing with politics, electoral or otherwise, and what that looks like. Um, I also just want to give a quick note for recent episodes, you may hear like a weird buzzing or like air sound in a lot of my recordings. It's because my computer is just like having a total conniption and um, I don't know, the, the the motor or something is kind of wheezing. So forgive me for that. 
And then also on this episode, because Zoom is stingy uh, and you can only record 40 minutes at a time unless you get a pro or business account, which we're looking into right now, um, we had to stop and restart in some cases. So sometimes um, words or final sentences get cut off uh, because we ran out of time and we had to restart, reopen the room, etc. So please forgive me for that on the technical end. Um, but with that said, on with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Wendy. Um, we are here today with Richard, of course. Hey, Richard, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here. And then we have a special guest today, actually, joining us for Podmas, Mr. Michael Salomon. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, Michael, for those of you who may not know, is actually the alter of our uh, theme song. So the music that he, he actually like, created a whole album. And back in the day, I kind of put out some feelers saying, like, is anyone interested in making a theme song for us? Um, I had like posted something on Twitter and um, Michael responded that he may have some music that we could use. And so he sent me some tracks. I listened to several of them. It was down to two or three. And then I chose what is uh, known as my life as a video game or as a video game. Um, and that's the one that I chose for our theme song, which everyone really likes. They're always like, it sounds like it's something from a James Bond movie or something, <laughs> um, which is kind of fun considering that we're, we're not for spies, at least not the CIA or MI6 ones. But, um, you know, we do talk about foreign policy and things like that quite a bit. So it fits. Um, and yeah, he was just like really generous with um, offering that. And we've kept in touch over the years just by virtue of sort of writing about um, socialist issues, progressive politics, things like that. And so I wanted to have him on the show today as sort of a behind the scenes look at what he does. Um, just kind of give you a behind the scenes look as well with regard to the podcast, um, you know, the man behind the music, if you will. So Michael, welcome. And feel free to tell the audience a little bit more about your background and what you do and sort of how you came into um, these rather progressive spaces through your music. Well, thanks, Wendy and Richard, for having me. It's been such an honor that you've used one of my songs of all these years, and it, it's really just quite wonderful to be invited to speak with you. Um, I, I've put out some albums. At the time that you were looking for a theme, I had actively put together theme songs for people's podcasts, um, and I, I was under a little stress at that time because I was also finishing my master's, and uh, you were kind enough to say that you would use something existing. I was like, you can have anything out of my catalog. And it was uh, just a joy that you you picked something that I've always thought was like a lighthearted, but had some meat behind it, uh, instrumental. So it's, it's always a pleasure when I tune into your show and there's a little bit of me uh, sharing some space with you. It, it's <laughs> been a, an honor to, to be there with you. Um, so yeah, I've, lived a, a weird life. Uh, out of undergrad, I had joined a band and was traveling around the country, started picking up gigs, writing for alternative newsweeklies as we were around uh, whatever city or state we were in. We'd settled in Denver. I went to work at their alt-weekly, um, and then I came back to where I'm from, Western New York, and started an alt-newsweekly uh, where I was the editor-in-chief for a lot of years. Um, and all that time, my undergrad uh, was supposed to be in political science. I switched out of it late. Um, I was always very interested in 
leftist politics since I was a kid, and I mean kid like child, and uh, uh, just through journalism, music and art spaces are very political, at least at the after parties. Um, It's always been a, a part of my life. So when I think it's fair to say 2014 through 2016, Occupy through the the first Bernie Sanders primary, the left got activated. Um, I tried to jump in and more of a, hopefully more of a supporting role. Um, and I got connected with all sorts of wonderful people like Wendy. And it's been a a disappointing politically few years, but a really wonderful experience getting to know people doing the work and um, and hopefully helping some people do the work. Well, I mean, we really appreciate what you do. And, and one of the other reasons, you know, I wanted to have you on is because I noticed that in a lot of your work, you happen to, um, and I don't know, I mean, this may be intentional, but it seems to be a pattern of sorts. Um, you've done a lot of work with progressives and leftists of color in particular, um, and women leftists and things like that. And I was wondering, because, you know, unless we're going the Chris Cuomo route and we're counting Italians <laughs> as people of color, you yourself no. are, are not a person no. of color. Um, you're, I'm assuming this is Italian background, right? Salamone, is that Italian? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, okay. Sicilian. So you're you're sort of, I guess, again, going the Chris Cuomo route. You're you're kind of a, a Fredo, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not intentional, but I think I think it's just been my life. I mean, when I was pre going to school, my mom's mm-hmm. best friend was a, a Puerto Rican lady and a black lady, and uh, you know, that's that was the crowd I came up in, and. As I got to college, that's the crowd I hung out with. It was all accidental, not um, a fetish (laughs) or (laughs) some weird thing. But uh, often our politics align, our our religion, our spirituality align. I just find myself in those circles. But as the progressive and socialist part came about, I think it was just who I was connecting with at the time that that was my – network and i think of anoa right off the bat mm-hmm. a mutual friend of ours like we just hit it off and anything she was doing that i could help with i wanted to be a part of and, and she was gracious enough to do the same for me and you, you meet people and you try and you try and help out but um definitely not in, intentional i'm sorry if there are any white uh socialists out there that feel that i didn't do anything for them <laughs> <laughs> You got like a, an affirmative action program. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, and by the way, you're referring to Anoa Changa, just for those who may not be familiar with her. Um, although she's been a guest on the show as well, twice, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and of course, all of us used to be involved with uh, Progressive Army and some other outlets. So that's kind of how some of our paths crossed in the past, at least during the Bernie campaign and kind of around the 2016, 2016, 2017 um, time period. But you mentioned sort of in passing, but I do want to um, follow up on this. You talked a bit about uh, just now about Christianity. And I know that, so actually when I first learned about you, I kind of listened to bits of your podcast and you had done a really excellent episode about the family, which is like oh, this yeah. conservative religious group um, that's 
primarily functioning in DC, right? Like I don't, I don't, I think well, they have other behind allies, the national but... prayer breakfast. Yeah. Um, and really uh, shady so stuff. <laughs> both parties are really entrenched with what I think is a cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time we were mostly concerned because the Clintons have deep roots with the family. Um, and Hillary was at, at that point, we all believed she would be president. And it was right. a concern of mine. I, uh, during that time was getting my master's and, and now I have an honorary uh, doctorate of divinity. So I sometimes use Reverend Dr. Salomon and um, encountering right wing Christianity is, was supposed to be the purpose of when I first started uh, doing a serious podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I strayed from that pretty quickly, but um, the episode you're talking about was when a friend of mine who at the time was the youngest ordained Presbyterian with his own congregation, um, who's very much a uh, Jesus was a socialist type fella, <laughs> as mm-hmm. I am, we would talk about those sort of, in our view, important issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it definitely, I think there's a, a really important place for this idea in particular because of like the areas that I study, you know, primarily Latin America and Southern Africa, there's, a, especially in Latin America, there's a really heavy, heavy emphasis on liberation theology. Um, and also like being a black person from the South, just having that history there as well. We didn't really call it that, um, but it certainly was a part of, you know, things like the civil rights movement and even, even yeah. elements of the black power movement, right? Like more explicitly people had come out of um, these so sort of Southern religious enclaves that saw the overlap between political um, action and subversive activities for the sake of of human rights um, and the overlap there with with reality with Christianity in particular and religion as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see your work um, sort of exemplifying that or connecting with these ideas um, more explicitly? I I don't know if there's a a purposeful thing there like. I'm thinking back to that Dick Gregory documentary that came out last year and how churches were specifically political because the members of the church needed to be political (laughs) to get their rights. Um, But for me, it comes from an act of service. So I I personally believe that my life is best lived when I'm in service to others. Um, That's really the basis of my faith. And so liberation politics or liberation theology is huge to that because I always try to sum it up succinctly as I want you to have all the human rights and everybody else too. And I'm yet to live in a world where that sort of thing exists. Uh, I consider myself a Christian socialist. I try not to push my faith. So I want to try and choose my words carefully here, but to me, that's the message of Christ is that we live in service to each other and lift each other up. Um, So that's very personal to me. And and though I fail often, as I am a human being, um, living in service to others is is what I strive to uh, have as a a mantra, if you will. Um, So if that affects my work, good i'm succeeding uh at times like right now when i've not accepted any projects i'm probably failing um 
But uh, I decided I have a birthday coming up uh, at the end of the month. I've decided I'm allowing myself December and January for a full mental breakdown. So then I can come back <laughs> stronger than ever. <laughs> um, so that's part of uh, vacation mode Salomone. But um, I don't think I'm answering your question. So I'll try and wrap up with, to me, we need to recognize identity because it is who a person is. It is background. It comes with culture. It comes with rich history. Um, but it's not, identity is not the entire community. We're all in community with each other. So we have to celebrate each other. So I celebrate your identity and I want to lift you up and hope that you have the same respect for me, which you do, or you wouldn't invited a Guido over. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't really think about it as trying to get into black liberation politics as the white token boy, but if I can be of service and you'll have me sign me up. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I mean, I think, as I said, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, obviously liberation theology is not exclusive to um, communities of color, but it's certainly something that I think we've seen very active in communities of color. And, and the communities that I speak of in Latin America, of course, are mixed racially as well. Um, they're, yeah. they're white, they're black, they're indigenous, etc. Um, but it is sort of interesting, especially in a country like the United States, where white Christianity, and I say that specifically because I'm, you know, th religion even is so segregated here, um, oh, yeah. has a tendency to be very socially conservative, politically, you know, economic, all the way, all the way around conservative, right, in all areas of conservatism. And it's just fascinating to me when people break from that um, and sort of go more towards a leftist understanding of, of religious teachings. And I would argue, you know, the main purpose of them to begin with, at least if we're going to be true to the word of, of the Bible or, or whatever faith you follow, you know? Yeah. If you read the red bits of the Bible, it's very different than, well, really the problem lies in evangelicism. Mm -hmm. And I think when people hear Christianity, they think of the evangelical TV church, mega church, Though I've talked with, with plenty of black pastors in the last few years about their concerns of evangelical black churches, I know uh, firsthand from attending a Hispanic church that there are people becoming very evangelical in, in those spaces. Um, and that's, uh, I think, on purpose politically. I think it's almost like an infiltration of sorts, but that's a different conversation. For me, uh, there was a movement out of the UK in the 60s that they specifically called Christian socialism, which was saying that these tenets of the gospel of service to each other, sharing with each other, feed the, the hungry, clothe the poor, house the houseless. Um, this is socialism. This is what Christ commands of us to, uh, to make right with our Lord. And so... I think that it's fair to say that probably influenced people like Dr. King, who were religious leaders at home and, and starting to embrace socialism as well. Um, that's where I identify more than uh, the political areas. But at the end of the day, anybody who is what we would call to the left in the faith, and this happens in Jewish communities as well. I worked at a a Jewish center that there are right wing and left wing factions. But if we're on the left in a faith, 
um, we are battling some sort of evangelical, whether it's Christian or Jewish or Muslim, there are extremes that are distorting what those of us on the left side of those religions, and sorry just to be talking about Abrahamic religions here, um, we are combating that right-wing extremism on a faith level, which is a different fight than we're having on Twitter every day, but really just as important in people's lives as the day-to-day -day political issues because people who are involved in a church are forming their worldviews there. And that's important to me. One of the things that kind of piqued my interest is you did mention that some of the kind of uh, the after parties of the music scene were political, but I was curious, both your kind of general musical influence and then also if you had any political influence, because I also am a big fan of the, the intro music and it was uh, and very captivating. So I'm just also kind of curious about that. Well, when I said that about after parties, I, I'm just thinking back to when I was an active gigging guy or just hanging out in after parties of, of bands I knew that I went to see or DJs. And there would always be like this, I romanticize it like we would imagine the 1920s artist salon in Paris, but, <laughs> but in a grimy upstairs of a bar setting. Um, that everybody defaults to talking politics. And generally a bohemian lifestyle means uh, you're more to the left than to the right. Um, so that was just always an active conversation. I'm the instrumental album that uh, your theme song is on. I believe there's a track called Johnny's Talking Politics Again, which is a, about a guy who used to be on my podcast a lot, who's this great soul singer. Um, but not that old, uh, maybe I'm going to guess 50 now, um, who I would always end up at these parties. And next thing you know, the sun's up and we're still bitching about the bushes. Um, <laughs> and that kind of environment seemed to be everywhere I went. Um, but as for my music, I, there are definitely songs that are very political, but I think a lot of that's also pretty just weird and silly and, and some is uh, about heartbreak and you know run the full gamut of what inspires you um but it, i was very fortunate i think as as a young musician i came up uh out of jazz and funk and soul uh there was a little ska in there um predominantly oh my God, was in a, ska. i missed ska. <laughs> <laughs> i was predominantly was in a, i'm old uh, enough for it <laughs> Predominantly was in a funk band for, for years. Um, believe it or not, I used to be skinny and uh, I was the, the front man for a, a funk band, which was always kind of weird for people when they saw us. Um, like, what's this Guido doing singing punk or funk? <laughs> It'd be even weirder if it were punk. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know how that influences my politics other than the theme of your your show with people of color when you're playing soul and funk music uh, that's going to be a big part of your community um so maybe that's a big part of our politics there as well hmm, thank you that's uh, interesting and uh, i feel like uh, i've only had a chance to sample some of the music that uh, from your uh, collection but i felt uh, a lot of those influences so it's uh, affirming to hear that as well 
Thanks. Well, uh, as my pinned tweet for my birthday month, every day or every evening, I'm uh, posting one of the several hundred songs of my catalog and, you know, giving a tweet's worth of where it came from. Um, but mostly as a reminder for myself that I should be taking this downtime to get weird and make music. You should, Michael, because I remember the stuff that I listened to and it was difficult for me to choose because I liked them just on a personal level, right? Like it was stuff that I would just like listen to and I wasn't sure what I wanted as a theme song because I was like, I was like trying to debate between is, do I like this just because I like this or do I like this because I feel like it would make a good theme song? You know what I mean? And those are like kind of two different things. Um, Well, I thank you. That's a very nice compliment. Um, I remember for the brief time that we were talking, maybe I would create something original for you. Mm-hmm. We really couldn't get down on what the, the vibe or the backbone or what uh, theme we should be going for. And that's one of the reasons we started listening to other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and, and what's funny is my life as a video game wasn't one that I would have imagined <laughs> you would connect with. And it's been a real joy all these years to hear it that way. Yeah, because it was it was definitely one where I was like, I think I just like the song. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I don't know if it works great for like, I'm not sure if it's if its purpose is fully as a theme song, but it's so distinct that it kind of works. You know what I mean? And like I said, it sounds like a double everyone tells us it sounds like something 007 sort of. Um, so it kind of fits. But I, I really like the music. And I, I think, too, that you know, what's so fun about it is just that there, you can clearly hear the different influences, right? You've got funk, you've got a ton of electronica. You have some that sound like they're influenced by like, like, uh, Bollywood or something like almost like (laughs) Indian hot, like, like Indian film, um, music and stuff like that. You can fill me in on this because I'm not entirely sure if I'm off base, but no, that's really cool that you pick up on that. Yeah. That's really cool. In the late nineties, um, I got really into going out dancing uh any night that we weren't playing ourselves and um and that led to doing some djing myself mm-hmm. and i was heavy in the international stacks during that period because there's just so many cool sounds that really nobody else would be sampling so you come out you know, automatically unique <laughs> if you're pulling in that so yeah i've listened to quite a bit of indian music um a lot of latin man i love the afro cubana music uh, to this day uh, if i'm in a blue point and i need to shake my butt a bit that's a quick remedy um so yeah there's all these sounds you can pull from and and ho- you hope you pray that that influences you as an artist in some good way and not making it sound like you're ripping off or or, or uh destroying or doing something bad to those influences um but really music is the perfect art form because it's communication without words. Um, so for a culture to have a sound and you to be able to recognize that and have a feeling behind it, it's a, a really, in my view, pure spiritual way of, of speaking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm feeling that because I also used to DJ um, back in the day and I still listen. I'm heavily influenced by, you know, DJ culture and things like that. I used to interview DJs um, and it's always interesting to hear, you know, where people are getting their influences from and also what they listen to in their personal lives. Right. Cause that, that can indicate a lot about 
the direction that they're the music choices that they have on the floor you know like when they're out playing at a club or whatever um you can definitely hear that coming through even if they're not quite as intentional about it but you the vibe comes through regardless right um so speaking of twitter because you mentioned twitter in passing a little bit um you i think you said once that you delete all of your tweets is this correct and why do you do that (laughs) um I guess it would be two Christmases ago. I got hacked and somebody deleted mm. my Twitter. Um, and when I got the account back about a month into it, I started finding tweets that had been deleted uh, when the whole Twitter account went on like Sarah Palin's website, you know, and they're trying to own the libs and wow. they picked up and I was like, well, these tweets don't exist anymore. They can't click through. So now periodically I was until I started doing this post a song every day for a month thing, just weekly deleting it. Cause I don't think that anybody needs to have access to this content that we create for free for this corporation. I don't, I don't need it to be on right-wing websites or liberal websites that are trying to punch left. That's mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. It's just a choice I made that, well, this is great. And actually I'd learn from something that was potentially bad that happened to me, I, I learned a valuable lesson of like, there's no reason. I mean, yeah, the internet's forever. I'm sure if you dig, you can find anything, but there's no reason to just leave this all lying around for enemies to, to use. And I think the more and more we learn about the surveillance state, I mean, there's this thing out of California where they were collecting tweets of leftists. Um, well, Bree Newsom got, tied up in it somehow and she lives in Mm. north carolina and this is california police um yeah there's no reason to let law enforcement just have your diary so that's that's my (laughs) feeling yeah i think that's fair (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely fair and it's something you know like we like i i think leftists in general think about a lot but especially if you're on the job market if you're an academic if you're trying to you know work for nonprofits or whatever any sort of political organization i mean people will dig up and take anything out of context um yeah you know it, it can be really tricky and frustrating um for everybody involved so well, and it's bumping up against the this kind of underlying theme of trying to generate and organize a popular movement of the people by the people through the people in kind of both a public and private space and so mm-hmm. like as you mentioned you got law enforcement but then also the the public nature of twitter combated or combined with you know trying to popularize a message in a viewpoint that is you know optimistic and hopeful for a future that is de- desirable yeah well richard i think you hit on a, a good point of why some people take issue with uh, me doing something like that. And they think it, these conversations should be on record because of, of movement building. Um, and that, uh, I get really worried about movement building in digital spaces. Wendy knows this about me. I, I tried to do a project that ultimately didn't take off of uh, a leftist online space for that, that was encrypted and, all that to try and just give people a place to organize. Um, And I don't think you can ever beat Twitter or or Facebook at the games that they're playing at the types of spaces they've created. Um, I personally have come down the, the the area that it's going to have to be regulated rather than 
um, recreated. But we need a place where people, and I know right-wingers go through this process too, and I might not agree with their hate speech, but we all deserve a place in this digital scape to go organize without fear of retribution, without fear of, as Wendy said, of an employer blackballing us, blacklisting us because of something we said 10 years ago. Um, I don't know what that solution is, but I do know that I think our digital liberties are as important of, as any of the other liberties we speak about because that's the world we live in now. So, yeah, speak, I mean, we're going to put some respect on the name of what you created, but it was called Media Revolt. Um, and we actually were using it. I mean, we had a left POC page on Media Revolt. Um, and, you know, I think the challenge in general for a lot of content creators is the fact that, like, there are so many platforms now that it's difficult unless you have a whole team, which, again, requires money and, like, management and things like that, that a lot of us don't have the time or funding to do, um, to have people managing all of these social media sites. And I think also, you know, it could just be me speaking, but sometimes I think being on the left, you get a little paranoid. <laughs> like, I don't want to give sure. anyone the password to anything. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm cool with Richard having access to stuff, but I'm always nervous about like other people accessing things and like what they'll do with it or the harm that they could cause, or you just never know. Like, I think there's always a fear of sabotage um, yeah. and I think it's a justified fear, but I think, Indeed. you know, like I would have gotten a lot more use with your site um, if I had been able to just like do more media management, like that sort of cross posting and things like that. And I know that you were saying sometimes it was difficult to get, I guess it would be like licensing of some sort, or I'm not sure what the technical term would be, but the ability to cross post in between these sites is also complicated by some of the things that these corporations do, right? Is that sort of the appropriate way to, to summarize that? Yeah, um, I guess the way to put it is to own up that I had too much hubris thinking we could just go out there and do it. We recognized the need. Um, at this point, it was when Facebook let the FBI go through People who were in Black Lives Matter groups go through mm -hmm. their private messaging without a warrant. Mm -hmm. um, so we saw the need and just, it has to be done, let's do it. And though there was a nice volunteer base to start with, people develop up their interests, their lives get chaotic, and they drop off. And there just wasn't someone who could acquire the permissions to do cross logins and um and do that coding and then stay updated with it like for instance to let you log in using your facebook login they changed that every so often and you have to recreate the wheel um and that just was one of the many things that was hard for us to, to keep up on with limited staff limited resources um i'd had just a, a little tiny bit of money squirreled away to that I threw at the project and ultimately it was never going to be enough. And the whole thing that you just mentioned, as we got into the second stage where volunteers are dropping off and new people are offering, well, I have no way of vetting them. Mm -hmm. And 
though the whole thing was designed where like if you were in a private group or sent a private message me with all the keys to the account would never be able to decrypt that and see that they could still do damage to the whole project um so i became guarded of of what you can take on and then we ran into issues of um when right wingers would find the space and they would post garbage that Mm. wasn't what our community uh and we had to confront well what is free speech and uh people posting pornography well what is free speech is this this isn't necessarily the community for it what are our guidelines and that starts taking up a giant chunk of your time so you can't really start audience building which ultimately i think is why the project didn't work is there was no reason to check in because everybody you wanted to talk to were already on the site you were already using Mm -hmm. so unless you were needing that back alley chat which people used but I mean, they were log in, they would use chat, they wouldn't post, they wouldn't do anything that helps create community other than their purpose of having a private conversation. Um, but I held on to it as, as long as we could because I thought it was needed. But at the end of the day, I, I just had to give up. And I mean, I think it's still needed. Um, you know, like just the, the concept is really important um, for us to hold on to. And even if the execution itself is is really difficult. And I don't think you're alone in this, right? Like, I don't think that what happened with Media Revolt is exclusive to leftist spaces. It happens in so many cases. We've seen many, many sites open and then shutter because of the circumstances, right? Of just, just the competition and the funding and the time and the energy and the staff and all of that that goes into these sorts of sites and maintaining them. Um, you know, I think it's perfectly normal, but it's, it's also just frustrating that, um, you know, I think just frustrating in general, what the left is up against, because as I said, this, and you talked about this as well, this paranoia tends to dominate, but it's because we're like hunted. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think that. Well, sure. You you guys talk about this all the time. There's historical context there, why we need to be scared. Um, And, and sometimes that is uh, to the point that somebody in these spaces is actually scared for their lives and, mm-hmm. and you want to protect the people that are working with you. That's the justified fear. That's the left is always under attack by the center and the right. Mm-hmm. And just like the state as a whole, I mean, which is of course center and right, but you know, um, I think from yeah, so many becoming, sides. Oh, I was just, sorry. I didn't no, you're I was fine. Go ahead. Say, like, becoming the eye, like becoming a target of some right-wing site could then put you on the radar of uh, p- local police or whatever and subject you to harassment. Those are, that's like a mm-hmm. very legitimate scenario that could work out. And it, like the more popular and the more public facing you are, the, the higher that risk becomes and the more antagonistic you are of right-wing, you know, personalities or talking points, you know, that becomes an issue. And it's like people, uh, it, it's a real, it can be a very real and, uh, I guess, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just a, just a concerning threat. Yeah. More so from the right because they're more traditionally violent, but it exists purely on the left space too. I know somebody that felt bullied off the internet because they didn't like what Jimmy Dore is doing. Huh. <laughs> and those Don't get me started on him. 
But those the the bullies were people who would themselves identify as left. Mm-hmm. I may disagree with that personally, <laughs> but um, this, there's a whole culture on the internet now of that we attack and don't stand our lanes and let people have space to to have the conversations. Which sometimes, sometimes, uh, with ideology, this is rare. But sometimes people work these problems out for themselves if they get to think about it <laughs> and nobody really gets the chance to, to finish a thought on today's internet. Right. Like everything is so short. I mean, the other day I, I was giving a, I gave a talk to, like I did a webinar for um, historians who are trying to get, you know, more tech savvy and like use social media and things like that to talk about history, which is a really important step. Um, mm-hmm. I hate to break it to you guys, but you may already be aware many historians are kind of, um, less than tech savvy, even the younger <laughs> ones, like, it's like, they're very, very, very deeply committed to history and not the present. Um, and sometimes the worst ways, like I will mention pop culture stuff to some historians, even the ones my age or younger, and they'll look at me like they're just crickets. Right. Um, <laughs> so, but it, in talking to them, you know, I recognize that so many things that like you and I or others will engage and discuss. It's just, it's like, people don't think about these things outside of online spaces. So like when I mentioned doxing and the threats that many of us get just by stating facts about history or about politics, like when I've stated things about what was going on in Brazil during the elections and during, you know, what was going on with the Amazon fires and all of this stuff under Bolsonaro. And I would get so much harassment. And I think that, you know, the people that I was talking to the other day, they were just like, what on earth? Like, how can it be that these, these digital spaces can become like real life threats, you know, and they absolutely can because people will threaten to expose your information, your photos, your address, like just explaining Spokio to people, which for those who may not know, it's like a website where you can just look up anyone's address pretty much. Um, it's, it's crazy. And you can't take your, your name off this stuff. Like it's very difficult to remove your personal information from the internet, but it's very easy for others to find it. And so- yeah. It's, it's a real, I mean, threat, the threats are real and the concern is real. Um, but I appreciate the work that you have done, even if it wasn't, if it didn't live as long as we all would have liked. Um, I think that it's, it was an important contribution and an important first step towards what we do need to be building like collectively a bit more, even if it has to be, you know, clandestine and underground for a bit. But we, I think on the left, we do have to have better modes of communication and we just have to find a way to as impossible as this may sound keep out the state or police or you know the right um i think it's a valiant effort at least yeah white supremacists are very organized and you know they've had a long time to be so um (laughs) and movement spaces from the civil rights era through today get infiltrated um that's factual, it's historic, as you very well know and educate us all on. Um, so we need to always be considering that as we try and build space, which is hard because you want to be inclusive. You want everyone to join in with whatever you're working on, but uh, you've got to be you got to be careful. And it it's especially hard when we're talking about the the issues of specifically of the white supremacist 
patriarchy or, or the curiarchy to make it shorter, I guess, that there are forces that like things to be the way they were in like 1883. <laughs> they want that again. And they are well-funded. They are infiltrating police departments. And I, I believe that this can all be very well sourced that I'm not going off on some conspiracy tangent um, that, that these organizations do infiltrate law enforcement. That, uh, if you're not keeping that in mind, it's sort of like not using strong passwords on the internet. <laughs> Somebody's going to get into your stuff. And like my Twitter account two Christmases ago, they might just destroy it. I just I think you both raise excellent points. Uh, and I think it's partial, like part of it, is, I think, is done through on the ground organizing. But obviously that isn't immune or impervious to the same types of issues. But uh, I feel that the... You, you mentioned you called it a uh, hubris, but uh, I'm envious of the kind of the bold audacity of, you know, trying to take on something like that, recognizing the need and trying to do what you can to, to fulfill that. And uh, even if it doesn't work out uh, the way it might have been idealized, uh, I, I agree with Wendy that it is important to take those steps and uh, towards these types of organizational uh, projects that have to be taken on in order for us to make the kind of progress that we're ambitious of. Thanks, man. I, I did a lot of work in nonprofits um, and always had this saying that uh, sometimes we let the process dictate our time and there's never any progress because of it. So often I jump too quickly because I'm like, we got to just do it. If we just talk about it, we'll just be talking about it for five more years. Let's go. Let's go. Who's with me? <laughs> and then, you know, I've jumped off a cliff, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's always better to try than not try or whatever Yoda says. <laughs> I think that it speaks to a, a ongoing contention among uh, people on the left generally about like feeling the immediacy and the necessity of like climate change and all and other pressing matters as well. Uh, and the kind of also the necessity of long-term planning in order to establish the type of organizational base it takes on it, it takes to take on the type of interests and uh, conglomerated powers that are opposing the type of changes that people will want to see. Yeah, you you had it perfectly because those that we are opposing have no problem with funding an organization. Mm-hmm. I think too that you guys both both of the things that you just mentioned just kind of make me think about the, the frustrations of the legislative process as well, um, at least in terms of big government, right? Um, we just saw, once again, like the complete and utter breakdown of the Build Back Better program, which was, or plan, which was already weakened rather significantly. Um, but we just saw the breakdown because Joe Manchin now has said like, he's not going to vote for it despite all of the negotiations oddly in his favor. I still don't quite understand what was going on there, uh, why they were so beholden to whatever Joe Manchin said, but that's a, a, a side for another day. Um, but you know, it, it's frustrating. And while part of me wants to just ignore electoral politics and kind of the, the formal political scene altogether, I also recognize that putting some weight and pressure on it actually matters. Like we can't, we, we can't act like we can function without the state. 
unless we plan on completely like literally destroying it and starting from scratch with something else. Um, but until that time comes, if it were to, if it is to come, we still have to, like we can protest all we want, but we have to still rely on the state to pass laws. And if we don't engage them, which is fine, like I respect not voting, um, there's still the reality that like the people in power will make decisions that will ultimately affect your life, whether you vote or not. Right. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> if you're not seizing that power back, they still have the power. Yeah. And I, I just wonder about, you know, I think the limits that you all just just mentioned with regard to this feeling of like wanting something to happen now or faster or to happen at all. And just the constant frustration with gridlock and bureaucracy and these politicians just kind of it just feels like they're there to be in the way. And I'm not a libertarian or anything, but like part of me, just, <laughs> it's like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, it's so frustrating. It just feels like a time suck. And I don't know. Obama got me hyped up on the fierce urgency of now. And that was 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting 12 years for now. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when do we, when do we see a break? You know, like when, when is this? I don't know. I don't expect you to have a full on answer here, but. I don't know. Like, do you guys ever have that feeling where you're like, when, okay, so what's going to give? And I think just really quickly, like I, I keep seeing all the, like the squad members whom I appreciate, like, I don't hate them. I don't hate on them as much as some people do, but I understand their frustrations for sure. But I keep seeing them posting, like, you know, we should really do blah, blah, blah. And like tweeting at Joe Biden and stuff. And I'm like, y'all are in office. Like y'all are literally in office. Like don't tweet about stuff. Like do it you know yeah. like, like what are you doing you know like i don't know do you expect us to go do it for you like, <laughs> don't make the same what? tweets my niece is making on these issues you're in <laughs> office yeah right right <laughs> um i mean the the fact that and you're the historian correct me but in my view wherever in the world when a major change for justice took place no matter how minute it was sparked by something and that we had that moment centered around not just george floyd but i think we could call it the george floyd moment there was brianna taylor and many others at the time um that so many in the heat of a pandemic when it was new and scary to us it, right now it's old and scary to us but then it was really uh, unknown people still turned out around the globe to protest the police state and our members of congress put on african garb like the justin timberlake character in the dick in the box <laughs> video when they sing about kwanzaa yes <laughs> and then throw more money at the police than they've ever done before mm -hmm. so the spark isn't what it used to be and i think for us to find that change where legislators have no choice but to respond is we have to figure out what that spark is now because if it's not the whole world turning out when it's most dangerous for them to turn out i don't know what it is yeah it seems like nothing i mean even the january 6th nonsense didn't seem to move them all that much. I mean, like they, they literally had people like hunting them 
<laughs> in real time saying yeah. that they, they were going to go after them and kill them or hang them or whatever, you know, breaking down windows and jumping through the Capitol. And yet I don't see any real, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see any real legislative discussions going on about, you know, reducing um, the power of these kinds of militia groups or like anything discussing the prospect of some semblance of gun control, however you may feel about that. It's like not even on the table right now. Like there are lots of weird aspects to this where even when they're facing like very material challenges from people, regardless of which side of this you happen to be on, it doesn't seem like they flinch. It's a very strange, I mean, Donald Trump flinched, obviously he and the right responded with extreme violence towards peaceful protesters. Um, But I'm just, thinking in terms of like the larger legislative body uh they didn't they just don't seem phased by i guess because they their their power is so removed from what we have any ability to change maybe they just don't feel like it matters anyway i would argue sure there are congressional hearings and there are subpoenas etc and the fbi posted pictures and that comedian from Bob's Burgers and Mr. Show got outed as a right-wing nut job. Mm. That January 6th protesters won. Joe mm. Biden and the Democrats, in my view, have bent a knee to Republican demands since taking office. We're not getting any of Joe's promises to get people across the aisle on board for things that are good for Americans, blah, 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 yada, yada. That's not happening. Um, in fact, Lindsey Graham is meeting with Joe Biden and giving demands and getting them. Mm. Uh, so they actually won. They don't look at it that way. They feel they're being persecuted, that Biden's illegitimate in the White House. But when it comes to the political demands of that party, they're being met by the opposition, which in my view means there's no opposition at all. Mm-hmm. I would never speak ill in any form of like Corey Bush, for instance, who is, for lack of a better term, a street fighter who got elected by her people. Mm-hmm. I mean, she came specifically out of the Ferguson moment, which activated a lot of people that I'm very close with in this work. Um, but there are others, I would point to maybe Jayapal, who have been too cozy with calling it Joe Biden's agenda all the time and uh, taking, uh, going ahead and voting for the infrastructure when it was supposed to be tied to BBB, that they're just handing the right what they want, which is essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. They, I, I, they want all the death. They want all the suffering because they're not the ones in power right now, but in a way, aren't they? I mean, they are for sure. And it reminds me, it's like a kind of a microcosmic US-based version of what we tend to do to so many other countries. And we mean yes. state, not me, but this idea of like starving them until they have to choose a new leader or allow themselves to, to submit to US power, basically. Um, and we're looking at- Or how at we overthrow other countries. I'm sorry. Right. No, 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 but you're right. You That's... speak to this often and it's, I yeah. think, important. Like, what do we do to destabilize other countries so they accept an authoritarian leader that we are partial to? Mm-hmm. 
That's exactly uh, right. It's playing out here in my view. I agree. And it, yeah, it definitely feels that way. And I, I think, you know, it's always, it's often played out that way for other, like for just, I guess if you're talking about, let's say like for the black community, right? Like situations are so dire that people just kind of vote for whoever's on the table that has a D next to their name, right? I mean, this has been a historical pattern because we're a, a captured electorate. Um, but I think it's weird right now that like the whole country is facing a moment where there are really no alternatives. Um, yeah. There are no opposing forces. It's just the same, the same party, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it, I, th I think this idea is like getting worse and worse. I think we had moments in history where we could look and say, okay, we have an actual two party system. Um, but right now, and I would say for at least the past 10, 15 years, maybe longer, it's been increasingly more and more a sole, like very, very conservative one party system. And it's authoritarian rule ultimately, regardless of who's in office. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it's fair to say when you look at specifics of policy, especially in the social spectrum, nothing's different since George Herbert Walker Bush through Clinton, through W. Bush, through Obama, through Trump to now, other than the personalities. I think I think that's a fair argument. It's very blanket statement, but fair. Um and who, who are those people serving? Well, it's mm -hmm. definitely not our unhoused comrades, our, not our siblings on the picket lines, but the same, for lack of a better term, oligarchical power structures that, um, <laughs> that every leftist in history has warned us about. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. What are well, we going to do, point, guys? I was, <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, to your point, I'm reminded of uh, Obama's quote about comparing himself to, to like, uh, both, uh, uh, why am I, Reagan, and then also just uh, moderate Republicans of the 80s generally as a selling point. Like, yeah, this is, <laughs> and, and he's supposed to be the progressive champion, his landmark legislation being Romney care. This is, yeah. like, <laughs> It, it, it's it's very reflective of the kind of neoliberal new democrat kind of uh, strategy that was employed of essentially we're republicans but we think you should have at least slightly more human rights like some some communities that we think will vote for us in sufficient numbers we will give you some human rights that that, that essentially became what the neoliberal uh, kind of perspective was in my my from my view but now they're getting regressive on that. I mean, they could codify Roe v. Wade. Voting rights shouldn't be as big a deal legislatively as it is right now. But like I said earlier, I think they want 1883. I use that number because there's a new TV show called 1883. But <laughs> I think that's the America that the corporate interests want is that you're either a destitute person working for whatever wages they're willing to give you and or you're out on your own go go west young man except i guess it's uh hitch a ride and elon musk rocket i don't know where we go from here if we don't want to participate <laughs> in capitalism but i mean there's no way to around it but to admit that it's scary and i think that if we're having an honest conversation that 
dear listener, if you are scared, you're you're probably a human. That's great. Good for you. I feel like that's the rational <laughs> response, and I feel like it, it feels kind of like that we're gaslit by media and by all these like supposedly knowing people that are basically treating things like you know this is fine meme kind of situation where it's an emergency in which we need emergency responses like we needed to take a the look at what happened with covid and realize hey we need to change our entire way of life because of this immediate emergency but also what it portends for a larger like longer scale emergency of both climate and the larger ecological consequences of climate change survival of the species is everybody's business but it's not they treat it like it's not (laughs) instead it seems as though we've taken an approach that we are going to return back to normal regardless of the consequences of that or whether we can ever even get back to that uh, proposed normal or no matter how horrific it was for many of the people that were suffering under it Turn into the Today Show this morning for everything is fine. Thank you for shopping. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about that. Jesus. Yeah, I remember like, so at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I just had my child and I was like, I would be sitting in bed, you know, nursing her, like burping her, all that, you know, getting her woken up, whatever. And uh, I would turn on the Today Show because there was like nothing else on. And we, you know, it was at a time too, where like, it was, it was kind of, I think before everything went online, right? So like, it was kind of when theaters were still sort of open for a second. It was at that weird cusp moment where like HBO Max wasn't really a thing yet and stuff like that. So there was like nothing on TV. There were no new shows because everything was on lockdown, right? And they weren't like creating as much because they weren't sure how to navigate a pandemic and like filming and stuff at the same time. Do you guys remember this weird moment when it was like that? Oh, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I was a huge fan because things that people were pulling off in their bedrooms on YouTube for years, these high paid <laughs> media multimillionaires were struggling with. And I found mm-hmm. great joy in seeing them. Th- yeah, absolutely. I, for me, I think there's a few different aspects. One of the things that sticks out to me is I think that, the media sphere also has a similar issue of the political sphere of that like when it comes to like electoral politics the ability to change the system from within is very limited rather than the the leverage that the system has to push against you whether it's uh you know your political success your economic success or your kind of uh, uh popularity generally uh at a certain point, it becomes in the interest of uh, your opposition to try to co-opt you in some way, some form. And so, like, economically, we see that by getting people to invest in the same kind of capitalist structures that are that are so oppressive, whether that's, you know, tying your retirement to the stock market so that you're invested in the stock market staying, you know, above a certain point or whether it's, you know, uh, politically your ability to retain your seat or chairmanship or whatever uh, so that you can pass this legislation that you've been working towards for a decade that you may or may not get towards ever and like all these types of things the, the leverage that the system has to push against people is uh, so much stronger than the kind of uh, fortitude that even the most uh, I think ambitious and boldest people are able to muster in, in the vast majority of cases and which is one of the reasons why organization at the ground level is so key and the bottom up kind of 
mentality generally towards change is so kind of fundamental towards all the types of changes that we want to see. And so that we see when individuals and figures get centralized and focused, they become both targets uh, for the opposition in nefarious ways, like uh, the like the kind of violence or stuff that we were talking about earlier, or also uh, to to co-opt and to capture and to bend towards the will of the machine. I agree, and. In the indie media, indie media sphere, I guess I would sum it up as if your favorite indie broadcaster is doing a paid appearance on Tucker Carlson, they're probably not from the left. Yeah. It's weird how, though, that that seems like a very logical statement and normally I think would have been like, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And now when you say that, you get pushback from people who are calling themselves leftists. It's like upside down world, you know? Mm. Bizarro well, it's Superman. This, it's this weird, like uh, you mentioned deprogramming, and I think part of it is uh, also to the previous point is about unlearning and the critical, the necessity of unlearning. If we don't unlearn a lot of the propaganda that we've been indoctrinated with through the systems that we've, at least in the US primarily, have grown up in, then we start attaching these bad concepts and ideas of you know like patriotism or whatever towards ideas of the left in ways that are counterproductive and uh in just generally counterproductive and i think that is also an important aspect of what we see with kind of uh perhaps well-intentioned people that then get wrapped up in the kind of machinery in the what we're used how we're used to doing things we we see this all the time in the formation of left organizations generally in the in the formations of hierarchies and capitalist structures that resemble the same types of structures that are trying to be uh, torn down. Amen to all of that. I, I don't care who you are, what your identity is. I think we all have plenty to unlearn. If you're a man of any race, of any sexuality, you have unlearning to do around misogyny. If you're a white person, you have unlearning to do about white supremacy and uh, and colonialism in general, really. Um, but all of us pull something from the culture of being raised in this American capitalistic society that we will eventually have to address if we're going to become a better, more empathetic human. And uh, and a lot of times people don't begin that work till very late in life is my experience. So when we're arguing on the internet in our 20s and 30s, not all of us are, are there yet where we're trying to be more holistic with our interactions. Um, so it's hard to change somebody's mind if you can't, sort of understand where they're coming from and um i think you hit the nail right on the head with the fact that we all have something to unlearn and on that note um i think that we should actually talk about you know briefly what are some methods in your eyes you know and from from some of the things that you've done over the past few years um 
you know, what, what would you say are some methods or approaches that we can have beyond maybe um, just like podcasting and things like that, but what can we do to further this process of educating and unlearning at the same time um, our, for ourselves, but also the general public that we're seeking to reach through programming like this? Hmm. Well, I think, unfortunately, because everyone hates homework, reading is a big part of it. And in a lot of leftist spaces, you've always got people arguing about, well, are you reading theory? Are you reading theory? And I think reading theory is important, but I don't think it's as important as developing your moral backbone. And that, well, we just lost bell hooks. I think that's a wonderful person that it isn't talking about the specifics of Marx and Lenin, blah, 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 but of how does uh, the control systems work and and how do the oppression systems work and how do we develop into loving human beings around those? Um, you have to, to read people who've gone through that thought process and then think about it for yourself. Not everybody's gonna be up to doing that work. So as you may be doing that work, talking to, I always say kitchen, kitchen table politics is the most powerful. It's the same with any idea when you're actually having meaningful conversation with the people in your day-to-day -day lives, you'll change the most minds in my view. And speaking of bell hooks, by the way, we are going to have a reading revolution discussion about one of her essays um, coming up in the next week or so. I need to, I'm going to record, excuse me, record. Um, I'm going to record uh, a reading of it and then we're going to discuss it. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think, I think that's a good example of someone who just puts things in plain English, right? Who kind of, I, I'd say these sorts of people are almost translators of theory um, and do yes. a really good job kind of bridging um, theory. Sorry, there's my child. Um, bridging theory and, and putting it into practice. Um, and it's almost as if the language that they use is their praxis, right? Like it's, it's that translation that's their contribution, their biggest contribution um, to helping people understand what's being said in these larger works um, in a way that is more palatable and, and accessible. And I think that's like such, that's really important work. Um, you know, yeah, when you read her, it's so between. conversational. It's mm -hmm. like you're talking with her. Exactly. Um, and, and that internalizes it, I think, to get you thinking about what she's saying and hopefully inspire, well, where do I stand on this stuff? Am I loving everyone as much as I can? Probably not. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I think she's, she's a really remarkable example, and it's a shame that we've lost her. Um, but I think in, in the process of losing her, I think more people will discover her work and hopefully, um, you know, learn quite a bit from it. The good Reverend Doctor did mention something that uh, stuck out to me. He mentioned love, and I'm reminded of the concept of like revolutionary love and that the, like, it's very easy to get both like just generally down and negative and you know, for me depressed about the situation and like also for people to get angry and to turn vitriol not just uh, at what's a more obvious opposition but internalized opposition within their own organizing organizing spaces and it's a it's nice to be reminded that you know 
it is it's an act of love that we're all kind of engaged in that we're trying to do and being and i borrow fray and uh, becoming more fully human and that means both identifying and changing our world to fit what like what helps us and to live that you know more fully human life and so uh, i just i want to thank michael again for joining us and for sharing the his thoughts about what we talked about and some about his background as well and uh, just very thankful again to be a part of us well, thank you, Richard, for that succinct and beautiful reminder that it is about love and um, and that it's a, a, a process, a process that never ends. Um, because we are human, we will have feelings of fear and, and anger and, and even hatred, but to, uh, to internalize and, and look for ways to love and, and to build community around love is going to be some of the most rewarding stuff, at least in my experience, that a human can do. And also sometimes you have to fight for what you love. So, you know. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you both so much. Um, and thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. It was great to speak with you. And like I said, it was it was primarily to get sort of a behind the scenes, behind the man, behind the music, et cetera. Um, but it was so nice to, to hear more from you besides just your music, um, because I think you have a lot to contribute and clearly, you know, you're putting your money where your mouth is. And we really appreciate that. Um, and we appreciate you joining us today and all that you do overall. So thank you. Well, it was a, a deep honor to be here with both of you. And um, I, I thank you for sharing your space with me. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Just as a reminder, of course, you can always find us on social media by searching for Left POC. That's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And you can find us on Patreon where you can donate a dollar or more per month uh, by supporting us to go to patreon.com slash left POC. Again, that's patreon.com slash left POC. Thank you all so much. Take care of yourselves and talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.